Hey everyone, back again. Now we're on to part two of The Wretched of the Earth. France Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, which is going to take over from chapter three all the way to the end. So chapter three titled The Pitfalls of National Consciousness until the conclusion. Now before jumping into it, go check out part one if you haven't already. Uh, if you want to follow me anywhere than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. You can help me out by liking, sharing, subscribing. That'd be great. Uh, you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal. There are links for all of these things in the description if you're interested in that. And yeah, yeah, let's jump into the rest of the text here. So this starts out from chapter three, titled The Pitfalls of National Consciousness. Now he wants us to imagine here a post-colonial setting where colonial people take command of their country and their resources and its resources. There are potential problems here though. Because the privileged colonized people who were taught things in colonial universities will likely form an anti-national bourgeois class. So if you remember from the last episode, we were talking about the problems that come with uh, the possible problems that emerge in resistance to colonial rule. So colonized people might adopt guerrilla warfare to oppose uh, colonial rule, but you know, there are going to be certain problems obviously posed with that. Now what we're imagining is the crystallization of a new bourgeois class in the ashes of a colonial regime. And this new national bourgeois class might have emerged out of a conflict, a conflict of independence against colonial rule. But it hasn't completely renounced the values of that colonial rule. And so what we see instead is a formation or what we see is the formation of a new kind of bourgeois that privileges some people in the national setting over others. So previously colonized people have now been liberated, but they have been put under a new kind of rule in accordance with uh, still the logics of capitalism. And this these values might even be adopted by people in the middle classes who are every day being exploited by a new national bourgeois. And so they might only view nationalism in their minds as being an, a, a way by which to transfer into native hands of those unfair advantages, which are, leg, which are the legacy of the colonial period. So instead of challenging power, in this setting, it is simply about recreating power where different people benefit. So in this, where we have these middle-class, largely workers probably, feeling this way, there's going to be now, the national bourgeois is gonna take on the new role of intermediary between previous colonizers, who now just probably have a strategic allyship and economic allyship with their, with their ex-colony. And this is done to just continue exploitation, but not, but without direct colonial rule with the presence of tanks and police, government officials, and whatnot. People will continue to be exploited for the benefit of the uh, uh, colonial nation. And this is actually quite helpful for the colonizers because they can claim then that they are not being violent. They are not being colonizers. They are just engaging in what we know to be totally normal and totally accepted, that is economic exploitation of these people. And so this new national bourgeois that will probably be made up of maybe even resistance fighters 
in the past, will try to copy the decadence and the opulence of the Western bourgeois. And then people in the West, that is people in European countries, are going to then treat this ex-colony as like a tourist destination. And this is what we see, you know, we've seen historically, like tourist places have histories of being places that have been under colonial rule. Not all of them, not all of them, but some of them. And it is a, it is a, a very, it's a noticeable phenomenon. And this national bourgeois, because it will try to emulate and copy Western opulence and decadence, it will do so by further exploiting other people in that setting who were once their, perhaps their brothers and sisters, their relatives, their community members, exploiting them further to become more like their European uh, counterparts. And here again, we'll likely see emerge another kind of conflict, a kind of regionalism, where again, we have the country against the city, even in a post-independent setting or a setting that is post-colonial, where even if a colonizer just willingly left on their own, we might see this conflict emerge. And so small localities will fall into tradition. They will fall back, kind of like what we saw earlier in the last episode, they will fall back into, into tradition, whereas the wealthier people in towns will submit to popular religious ideals like uh, Islam or Christianity that have been then by that point imparted over much of the world through legacies of colonialism. And so new religious conflicts will emerge between traditional religions, if I can call them religions, traditional uh, relationships with the anything beyond the physical world. There will be conflicts that emerge between these local regional ones and popular ones of revealed religions like Christianity, like Islam. Meanwhile, of course, colonizers love this. Conflicts breed profits. And if they are able to exploit the fact that there are these conflicts in these ex-colonies, they're going to be able to further exploit the people there because conflicts are going to drive people to desperation, to work even harder, to earn even less because they have to feed themselves because that's the structure that they live in, which is kind of a vague statement. Let me unpack this. One of the central tenets of Marxist uh, thought is that capitalism produces the conditions so that people do not have the means to take care of themselves, so that jobs are done in such a way as to separate out each individual task to maximize the efficiency of any given person. Now, what this means is that you might be really good at making one part of one product, and you might do it all day for the rest of your life, but you will never know how to actually, never know, I'm, being, I'm exaggerating, but you won't have the means and perhaps the knowledge to know how to make the, the entirety of that thing. So it is really effective at stripping people of the knowledge that they have about agriculture, about woodworking, about uh, building shelter, about caring for oneself. And this extends to communities. It really uh, challenges and undoes uh, the ways that communities work with one another to help one another, not for profit, but out of care. So any true revolutionary project has to strike at the heart of this bourgeois logic so that in another revolutionary conflict or even in the first one or any revolutionary conflict, there won't just be one bourgeois replaced with another that will continue legacies of exploitation. And then, you know, further conflicts will emerge where if there's a leader of a country 
which, you know, in most cases there are, they will probably side with the bourgeois. And Fanon says that they will likely ask the people to fall back into the past and to become drunk on the remembrance of an epoch which led up to independence, to look back upon the past with starry-eyed exultation with rose-colored glasses as being this magical time, and they can take solace in that fact, which of course is just a hallucinogen meant to convince people of their, uh, try to convince them that they are not being exploited, I should say. And this easily falls into fascism and police control where uh, the police and the army will be mobilized to control the people so that they can't revolt. So one way to oppose the formation, the calcification, maybe, of uh, another bourgeois party, bourgeois group, is to nationalize trade so that the people own the means of production, they own, they, they directly benefit off of the trade of their products, and there's not this intermediary, this capitalist, who is going to siphon off the profits for themselves so that the people don't actually reap the profits that they make for the capitalist. And additionally, Fanon sees it as being important to offer political education to people so that they know how their political system works. They know how, within a capitalist economy, there are certain interests, certain political interests that work with one another to maintain that system and to do it in such a way as to make it seem as though that system is natural, as though it is you, it cannot be challenged. Now, this is necessary to make sure that the people do not become docile in the face of bourgeois exploitation. But we should be careful, though, because a misguided opposition to the bourgeois might be a dictatorship, which would be bad as well. And this would be, this would oppose, like, it, it might be based off of kind of traditionalism that seeks to make a country great again. Of course, it's just appealing to a tradition that at that point was probably long gone. Perhaps it never even existed, but it will do very little to actually elevate the people on a national basis. And so reducing the project of national consciousness and of opposition to colonial rule, to reduce it to a single leader's desires and drives is going to be dangerous. It's going to make it about them, not about the people. So one way to avoid this is to combat centralization. And this is really just the centralization of knowledge of political power to one part of, this, uh, of the country, like to simply have it in the city where there's like a nation, national capital where all decisions are made. Phenosis instead of value to having this kind of power distributed across the nation so that the country as well can have a proportionate voice and a proportionate, can play a proportionate part in decision-making to best represent those people who have long been forgotten by, who are often forgotten by people in the cities. And this is because the masses, people at that point, people who largely lived in the country really comprised the masses, aren't to be spoken for. Instead, they are to be given tools to allow them to speak for themselves, allow them to fight for themselves and to represent themselves. So all of this can't be forced though. Political education has to happen organically and it has to happen steadily. So it's not about just teaching people about racial oppression and how this intersects with capitalist oppression and then magically 
uh, for giving people weapons to fight to fight the powers, so to speak, because it is so not so clear as that. Instead, this must happen steadily and organically. And one of the other conditions that has to be met is that communication needs to improve so that people can actually organize and collaborate their struggles to organize their resistance. Moreover, it must be a global movement. It must oppose the spirit of discouragement that has been fostered by colonialism and uh, and it, other forms of imperialism and the bourgeois class. And this can be done through Fenot's own psychiatric practice of empowering people, working with people to get them to recognize that their psychological ills are not produced because they're broken, but because they've experienced horrors under colonial rule, and that the culprit is not so hard to identify, and it is much more easy to point to than a mental illness that can be quite elusive. Now, additionally, old traditional structures that privileged men over women have to be undone, because Fanon sees this as being something that mutually affects men and women. So they must work together, not simply continue legacies of uh, exploitation of women by men. And additionally, the police must be phased out, where he writes that an engineer is a thousand times more indispensable to his country than an officer. And it makes sense. And the police do very little compared to an engineer. And that'll put us here into chapter four, titled On National Culture. So one of colonialism's tactics is to convince the colonized that they don't have a history and they don't have anything worth fighting for then. And anything that came before colonialism was just childish uh, nonsense that didn't have, doesn't have any bearing on the real world. Certainly something Marx agreed with. Now, this doesn't mean that colonized people can't look to the past for some comfort away from colonial rule. I mean, it's only natural that they would. Um, and they may find inspiration for a national identity there. But again, for Fanon, it's about looking to the future as well. There needs to be a mix of the two. Now, Europeans look upon these efforts to look back to the past as being like a child, a, a child looking, you know, I don't even know what. They just look at it as being childish. But of course, they think that because their own national identities go unchallenged. Their own Spanish identity is just taken as being universal for them. Like, it cannot be seen otherwise. Now, in all of this, we can't forget that there is a unity among all African and other black nations in the way that they were automatically subordinated to Europe, to Europe and white people. And this is the basis of Aimé Césaire's notion of négritude, binding, finding the common thread among all black people. Now, Fanon has an issue with this in that Fanon sees, uh, worries that Césaire's notion discounts the specific national experiences of black people all across the world. So a black person living in Chicago experiences European oppression very differently than a black person in Kenya, for instance. And to do otherwise for Fanon is just something that academics like to do to try to find some kind of unifying thread and to really proffer up their position as an intellectual that is totally detached from the material existences 
of very differently situated people. Now, with that being said, doesn't discount that there are mutual experiences of oppression by European aggressors, of course, but these can't be taken to and used to ignore the specific local historical experiences of differently situated people. And all that would really do, not all, that would be too reductive, but what, what, what is at risk here as well is that it would just homogenize black people to say that they're all the same, they all have this unifying thread. And I was at a conference once, and Frank Wilderson III was giving a talk, uh, and he's one of his um, main contributions to the field is the notion of Afro-pessimism. And um, one professor there asked him, how does he account for differences in the experiences of black people, you know, when we consider Afro-Barbadian people or black people in other parts of the uh, Caribbean and black people in Uganda? Like, it's difficult to just homogenize all of these people under the same category just because it is it's totally different. Now, before you listen to this and say, oh, great, now I have ammunition to go against everyone who tries to buy for like Black Lives Matter because, oh, that's just too reductive of a, of, a, of a catchphrase that doesn't actually account for individual experiences. So those people don't actually know what they're talking about. There's something to be said certainly within the United States about there being a general alliance amongst all black people insofar as their heritage there was most likely one of slavery, being enslaved, their ancestors being enslaved. And they, many of these people don't actually know where their heritage is from. They don't know their ancestry. They don't know which part of the world their people actually come from. And so there is a kind of unifying thread there in that there is this loss of an attachment with a past. And so a community can be born out of that. Now, as far as the obsession with culture, with tradition, Fanon says that it is pretty useless when it comes to combating colonialism because he says that you will never make colonialism blush for shame by spreading out little-known cultural treasures under its eyes. So if you were to go to the past and say, like, oh, well, our tradition had XYZ artifacts, so uh, we are an autonomous people with our own history, that's going to do very little to actually persuade colonialists, colonizers, to stop colonizing. All that's going they, they just look at that and say, oh, this is just childish nonsense. There's, we have no use of this. Uh, we are going to continue exploiting you. So Fanoa is advocating for much more direct conflict between the colonized and the colonizer. And then there's the added problem that present anti-colonial movements might be branded as departing too far away from tradition just because they're trying to fight for the future. And this is something that Fanon really advocates for because they don't necessarily look back upon their culture and say, we have to try to revitalize this lost culture. Instead, by looking to the future, they might create these tensions in their, among their allies, among other people in their country who still want to hold on to these, uh, these relics of the past, which of course you can still have those, but it's about bringing it to the future as well. And again, I want to emphasize the complexity of this text. It really cannot be understated, and I really recommend you read it just because there's so much to it. It is just so rich with 
analyses of these types of conflicts and how they might emerge and what to do about them. Now here he provides the example of a cultural artifact by the uh, Guinean named Kaita Fodeba. And this, this person's name is interesting because, and I, whenever someone mentions a name in a text, I look them up uh, because I want to know about them. But this person's name was actually listed in some places as being Fodeba Keita. So I'm really sorry for this. I could not find which it really was. Like, it seemed like split on the issue as to what their name was, if it's Keita Fodeba or the other way around. So if anyone knows, like definitively, like, please let me know. Um, I hate that I need to ask this, but I just couldn't find out. <laughs> I mean, different sources of different things, and I, I hate that. Uh, so please let me know. In this book, it's Keita Fodeba, but in any case, just somebody knows. So he provides a poem titled African Dawn by Keita Fodeba that uh, engenders demystification and a call to arms. That is, it is a poem that directly illustrates the horrors of colonial rule and the necessity of colonized people to take up arms against the colonizer. Now, Fanon particularly likes this poem because it pays homage to tradition and culture while looking to the future, while seeing this as a project that has to be trained toward the future. Now, in all of this, this leads Fanon to define national culture as a whole body of efforts made by a people in the sphere of thought to describe, justify, and praise the action through which that people has created itself and keeps itself in existence. So as this definition tells us, national culture, because it contains the very act of national culture coming into being through combat, through cultural reinforcement, what it means then is that any anti-colonial movement, any resistance, has to itself become part of that new national culture and has to be embedded in it. So the national culture has to take on new meaning in a post-colonial world, not to just be about going to the past and adopting the tenets and the cultural attitudes of the past, but integrating new cultural dispositions into the future. And so in this way, no two national cultures are the same, even if they experienced and experienced similar types of oppression. And there comes a point in all this when a colonized people turn to a national literature to capture the spirit of battle and emancipation. And this is very common that in, in uh, revolutionary struggles, there's new art that emerges, new literature, new music. And these are used and enter into a new national culture, a new national identity. So purists might say, oh, well, these are, you know, not to be taken too seriously. They shouldn't be integrated. Fanon is saying that, no, they are very much going to be a part of this new national identity that comes about through uh, counter-colonial uh, counter forces. And it's important, another important point about this, this definition of national culture is that it anticipates development and change. It anticipates possibility. It's not saying that any nation can content itself with having 
found its identity, and it should just exist that way forever. Fanon wants there to be change, wants there to be development in accordance with the people's wills, with how they want to organize themselves. And the world is going to be changing all of our, all around them. Their landscape is going to change, their geography, the, the types of trade that they conduct, their resources are going to change. And of course, this is going to have effects on how they exist in the world. And they shouldn't be bound to older cultural principles to guide them in the future. They have to always create themselves anew. And this is the real secret, the key to world history for Fanon, because it is about national consciousnesses emerging all among each other. So you have not just one national consciousness where everyone adopts the same ideals, but every single part of the world, every single nation adopting an, its own consciousness of itself, which might mean breaking up already existing nations because people in different parts of it might believe things differently and they form their own nation and so on. And so what you see then, hopefully, is a mutual respect among all of those nations for one another because they have all arrived with the acknowledgement that they have done the best for themselves and they have realized their potential for themselves and for their people, not for a few despots or for a few uh, capital-hungry vampires. And that puts us here into chapter 5, titled Colonial War and Mental Disorders. Now, in this chapter, he goes into a lot of detail about the traumas inflicted on people within colonization. I'm not going to go into detail about all of that because it's very violent, and I think that it's not... I, your imagination can fill in the blanks. Uh, just imagine the most horrific things anyone can undergo, and there you have colonialism. So what I want to do here, and this will come out in a little bit, is I'm going to lay out some of the key themes that emerge throughout many of the case studies that he presents of the people he treated in his psychiatric uh, practice. So in any case, though, there's still going to be vague mentions of violence inflicted against marginalized people, colonized people, against women and children, but I'm not going into any detail about any of it, um, just saying that it is something that will be briefly mentioned. So here he is primarily focused on Algeria, which was colonized by France. And here he's interested in the types of mental wounds that are inflicted during national liberation. And these are mental wounds that large, in most cases, come about following physical wounds through, uh, through military conflict, through torture, through other reprehensible actions humans commit against one another. Now, what we noticed here, or what he noticed, was that colonized people would experience, in his words, disorders which persist for months on end, making a mass attack against the ego. So, for example, he had one patient who annually experienced insomnia and suicidal thoughts. And they came to find that around the time each year that he had these suicidal thoughts and this anxiety uh, and this insomnia, this happens to coincide with the date in which he was ordered to, uh, to plant a bomb somewhere that happened to kill, um, I think, about 10 people or so. And so Fanon takes this to be um, the psychological issues that he was experiencing took these to be indicative of the violence that he inflicted and the guilt that he had 
of that. However, this man, or Fanon rationalized this as almost the price for national liberation, which is one way to look at it. Uh, living in a colonial setting, I think that the relationship to violence is going to be different than anything I would would have any understanding of. Uh, but in any case, Fanon's appreciation of violence is is here, and we'll do what we you'll do what you want with it. Now he goes into some case studies that would take it would take way too long to summarize, and they're also way too graphic and violent to really go into detail about. But some of the common themes that emerge are that colonized people experience might experience insecurity, specifically men who feel like they've been infantilized by colonial regimes, and this might be a psychological distress that they have that comes up, especially if their family members are, um, are injured in any way. Colonized people might as well be, uh, might become violent to everyone, even their comrades after a near-death experience. They might become totally dissociated and inflict violence against themselves and their loved ones. Or colonized people might experience anxiety and depersonalization after having to be violent themselves. Some people might experience extreme fear as a post-traumatic stress, as kind of post-traumatic stress disorder after having undergone an extreme trauma. And so if they see someone that resembles somebody they'd fought, or someone who would hurt them, then they might really, it might be a very traumatic experience for them. On the part of colonizers too, because Fanon was also treating European people in his clinic. Uh, he also found that among colonizers, there was a kind of competition among colonizers to inflict as much pain as possible against colonized people, that because they felt like they were inadequate, they weren't inflicting as much pain as their fellow colonizers, which is like such a horrifying sentence to say out loud, they would then, because they felt infantilized, then take that out on their families or on their other loved ones. Uh, there was one example where children had engaged in violence, and they rationalized this by saying that uh, two Arabic children had uh, inflicted violence against a European boy. And they rationalized this by saying that it's okay because if it was the other way around, the European kid wouldn't have gotten into any trouble. There's also cases in which some colonized people embraced terrorism because they were suicidal with hopelessness, so they would do anything, even if it meant um, themselves dying. There's also cases where, or this one case where this one European woman felt guilt for her father's actions in a colonial regime or as part of a colonial regime. There are examples of children feeling paranoid and anxious because, well, obviously, you know, the threat is looming everywhere and kids, anyone really can't possibly prepare themselves for it. Uh, there were experiences of postpartum depression among Algerian women after giving birth, of course, uh, and having and, and just insurmountable fear that their children were going to be victims to colonial power, colonial violence. There are whole swaths of people who are, were extremely distressed following any violence against them, of course. It's not surprising. People were effectively brainwashed uh, to accept European values, Europe, the idea of European superiority. And then there were also colonized people who experienced convulsions and disgust of, against colonial authority. And the, really, like all of these, these are just the 
broad strokes I'm taking out here because he just he presents all of these case studies that would take too long, as I said, to summarize. And it's, they're also extremely violent, uh, describing different ways of torturing people, for example, and it's really horrific stuff. And it makes total sense that no one can feel normal under colonial rule just because it is so violent. And even when it isn't violent, like physically violent, it is still psychologically scarring, traumatizing. The imposition of one set of values onto somebody is just, is a horrifying thing to imagine. So of course, nobody can really feel normal under these conditions. And Fanon saw this. He, he, he was treating so many people. And this is why he thought that it was important for psychiatrists to treat these mental disorders produced by these traumas, but to also combat the colonialism that is producing these traumas. So it's no, it's no surprise then that under colonial regimes, under colonial authority, colonized people might resort to criminality in the eyes of the European colonizers because they don't have another choice. I mean, largely their economic options are going to be taken away from them. Their land is going to be taken away. Connections to their community and tradition are taken away. And after that, like what, what is there? Like they're probably going to be separated from the rest of their families. And it's just horrific all around. And it's, it seems totally strange to think that they'll just adopt the values of the people who have hurt them like this. And it's really a catch-22 because it forces people to commit crimes, probably. And then the colonizer uses that to justify even further control, even more stringent control, stringent policing against colonized people. And then there, there are whole sciences that emerged that tried to justify the actions of colonized people by saying that, they, oh, they're... Their, uh, their brains are less developed or their brains are smaller or any other kind of racist evolutionary arguments, physiological arguments against entire swaths of people that were used, like, that justified many violences all throughout history, very much, like, even to this day, that have been used to separate people. Certainly, like, what was seen in Rwanda, where the Hutus and the Tutsis were separated on this basis of their physiology that... Um, the colonizers had imposed upon them, these ideas they had imposed upon them that eventually culminated into a, such an atrocious conflict. And here we arrive at the conclusion, and the conclusion is rather short, so this will be short. But the, in it, he says that the revolution shouldn't seek to replicate Europe, shouldn't seek to just make another Europe wherever the revolution occurs, the anti-colonial revolution. This means instead putting forward a new idea of the human, of man, is the word that we get here, regrettably, but in any case, putting forward a new idea of what a human is and what humanity is capable of for the betterment of the world. And he stresses that this is something that is done in accordance alongside with European people, not against them, because that would be, you know, that's just way too, way too reductive to suggest that Europeans don't also have a nationalist drive to vie for their own values, which Fanon doesn't want to step on the toes of. He doesn't want those values to be imposed against him or people he aligns with in his nation or, you know, across all of Africa or across all of South America and so on. And yeah, that's essentially it. I, you know, I don't, I'm not, 
fully in agreement with Fennell for a number of reasons. Uh, but at the same time, I acknowledge that I have no frame of reference for any of this. Sure, I, I'm squeamish with violence and would prefer it not occur, but I also have never lived under colonial rule. Uh, I've never been a black man under colonial rule. I have no idea what that is like. And I am also in a privileged position to be critical of national identity because I don't, I don't need that to stay alive. It's like, it's like uh, a possible safety net against losing complete attachment from the world and from family and people. And I'd love to hear what other people have to think uh, about this to give more context and other, other opinions. I'd love to hear them. And yeah, on that note, if there's anything I omitted, anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. And yeah, catch you next time. Take care.